We're going to start a new series that we've entitled Snapshots. Uh, This series is going to be focused in on looking at, during the months of summer, uh, different psalms. Now, we're not going to go through every one of the 150 psalms. That would take over three years to be able to accomplish because there's a lot of uh, bigger psalms than we'd probably even be able to accomplish in uh, one week. But we are going to look at 13 different psalms over uh, the next uh, three months. And uh, our desire is, is to look at these amazing portions of Scripture, some of the most favorite portions of Scripture in all of the Bible, and begin to apply them and look at the snapshots that they reveal. As we look at the book of Psalms, we recognize and understand that the book of Psalms is a book of snapshots. It's a book that goes uh, speaking from the great triumphs of the writer in his walk with God to the greatest struggles and agony of defeat that they have, whether in regards to sin or enemies that find themselves uh, surrounding them. We see times of great joy and great peace. At other times, we find great pain and great chaos in the life of the individual. There are times that we see in the Psalms where they write of God being their redeemer, God being the one who loves them and ministers to them uh, in all days and all times of their life. Yet there are other Psalms where God is viewed as the one who comes and corrects, the God who comes and judges, the God who comes and deals forcibly with those who are wicked. All of these are snapshots. All of these find themselves in the Psalms. The reason why snapshots seems to be such a great way to explain the Psalms is because they're written by many different people. Even though the half of them are attributed to David, the king, the man after God's own heart, uh, each of them, including the one today which we believe was written by Solomon, gives a snapshot into the life of the individual who's writing it. Some of, the most raw, some of the rawest portions of Scripture are found in the Psalms. Some of the most honest understanding of a relationship with God is seen in the book that you have before you. 150 chapters, 150 words of wisdom that teach all about God and many times point to Jesus Christ in our relationship with the future King of Kings and Lord of Lords when it was written to point us to our understanding and our need to have Christ in our lives and to have God reign supreme in all that we say and do. It's a snapshot. A snapshot at different times of different places where you will be. We'll focus in on hope. We'll deal with the issue of forgiveness. We'll deal with the issue of anxiety. Who can't uh, enjoy a sermon about the happiness that we can find in, in Christ and the happiness we can find in following God's word? But we also know that the psalmist speaks of also times of pain. And we didn't have enough room to put all of the snapshots that we'll address. But it gives you an understanding that psalms is a book for all situations. And there will be a sermon, hopefully two or three sermons, that will address exactly where you find yourself in that moment as we address it. Now our hope is, and you'll have in your friendship registry, we'd like to see uh, some small groups uh, be studying uh, this as well. And we want to welcome you uh, to sign up if you uh, would like to continue in a small group. Uh, We want to see five, six, ten, maybe twelve small groups continue over the time of this series. And if that's something you'd like to be a part of, and I know schedules are busy, but if there's something you would like to be a part of and and continuing in your walk with Christ and in community, I want you to sign up for that. And we're going to be telling you where uh, some small groups are going to be 
uh, starting in the next couple weeks, focusing in on learning more about the snapshots of all situations for the book of Psalms. So today, with all of that in mind, we turn to no better place than Psalm 1 and address right at the beginning a psalm about happiness, a psalm about knowing how we can truly have, if you will, a happy life. I want us to go ahead and just for a moment stand as we look at Psalm 1. And because psalms are poems and they're songs, much of them are used to lead the people of God in worship. We're going to do something a little different today. And that is because of the passage being relatively short, I'm going to lead us in the reading of this. We're going to use the NIV translation. And so if you don't have, look at your your back of your Bible. If it doesn't say NIV, you might want to speak a little quieter or it will sound a little different. But go ahead and follow with me and read aloud with me Psalm 1 together. So let's read this together. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners Or sit in the seat of mockers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, and whose leaf does not wither, whatever he does prospers. Not so the wicked, they are like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Let's pray. Lord, we welcome you into this place. We understand that you are at all places at all times, but we give you a special welcome this morning as a corporate people of yours, and we thank you for your presence in our lives. We thank you that you have given us the way to happiness, the place where we can find joy. And Lord, I pray that we would apply this first psalm to our life so that people may see that we may experience a life that is beyond all the limits that this world has ever put on us, that we would be able to truly experience what life is like in you. Lord, I am reminded of what you said when you were here on the earth. When you said that uh, the devil comes to steal, to kill, and destroy. But that you have come, that I might have life. Lord, that you came so the people of Village Bible Church might have life. But Lord, you didn't stop there. You didn't just say just a mediocre life or or just a regular kind of life. You said that we could have a life, an abundant life, a life in all its fullness. And so, Lord, I pray that we would experience that today. But, Lord, to be able to experience that kind of life, we must apply what Psalm 1 has to say. And so, Lord, I pray that we would. I pray that I would, so that I might be blessed, and so that the people, the hearers of your word, would be blessed in their doing it as well. Thank you for this time, Lord. We bless you in all that we say and do. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. As we begin this series, we focus in 
on a psalm that speaks about happiness. And whether or not you are old or young, whether you find yourself rich or poor, whether you find yourself new to the area or a long-time resident, I can assure you, no matter what differences we have as a people, all of us want to be happy. Can I, can I get an amen to that, that we all want to be happy? Is there, is there one person in this place that would say, you know what, no, Tim, I, I don't want to be happy. There's no part of me, thanks a lot, Ernie, there's no part of me that wants to be filled with joy and the peace and the contentment that comes with happiness. Now, as we talk about happiness, I have to be reminded as a, a lover of history that the forefathers of this, of this country gave us the right to be happy. When they told us that we were endowed by our creator with the right for life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. You all passed the civics exam. The pursuit of happiness. Now, some 250 years after penning those words, you would think that we as a people, especially as Americans, would be a happy people. You would think that because we've been given the right to be happy, that we would have perfected this emotion, we would have perfected this, and not only would we know where we can find happiness, but we would be experiencing it every day. But sadly in our world today, including here in America, and I can assure you probably here in this room, many of us are not experiencing the happiness that God wants to give. The psalmist begins this passage with the word blessed. It's the Hebrew word esher. Esher literally means, blessed is a, a good translation, a better translation is happy is the man. And the idea here is the reason why the man is happy is because his life is full of gusto. My dad always used to say, live life to the fullest, live it with all gusto. And if you know my dad, you know he's a, he's a fun-loving guy who lives life with gusto. There's nothing small about my dad's life. He wants to live it to the fullest. He wants to take all of it in. And God wants us to experience that as well. I call it living beyond all the limits the idea of letting go of all the chains, all of the things, as we learned last week from, from Mark, with regards to getting rid of all the things that keep us from enduring in the race, but not just enduring. God didn't just get us into this race to endure, but to enjoy it, to enjoy it to the fullest, because Jesus came to give you life. He came to give you all that he had promised in his word. But sadly, as I say, we don't experience that. I like what French statesman Talleyrand says with regards to the pursuit of happiness. He says, behold, 83 years have passed by me. What cares? What agitation? What anxiety? What ill will? What sad complications? As you look back at your life, do you see a life of happiness found in Christ? Or do you see uh, the French statesman words that all you look back on if your years is not a life of happiness, not a life that's lived to the fullest, but a life that's filled with all kinds of anxiety and complications. 
You punch the clock on Monday. You punch out on Friday thinking the weekend's going to bring it. And then you just find yourself again here on a Sunday wondering when is it all going to change. You see, there was a theologian in the mid-60s, not a very good one, but he seems to ring true in this sense. The theologian's name was Mick Jagger, and he said that I can't get no satisfaction. I try, and I try, and I try, but I can't get no satisfaction. You see, when we pursue the things of this world as Mick Jagger has, we will recognize what C.S. Lewis says about the issue of hedonism, pleasing self and pursuing the loves and the desires that we want over the desires of Christ. And what it is is, what C.S. Lewis says that Mick Jagger's issue is, is he's just drinking in salt water. He thinks that the salt water is going to uh, meet his thirst. It's going to quench the thirst that he has for true happiness and contentment. But the problem is when you drink salt water, does it quench your thirst? No. What does it cause you to do more of? Thirst for more. And so many of us are pursuing a life with all of its fullness, a life that lives beyond all the limits. And what we do is we fill it with the things of this world. And when we fill it with the things of this world, not only do we not become happy, but we yearn for happiness all the more. Now, that's true of unbelievers. But what about for us as believers? What keeps us from that blessed life, that happy life? Notice in our text today, there are four things that I want us to see. If we want to go beyond all the limits, it involves, first of all, being set apart being set apart from the world. Now, what I mean by that, and I want to highlight that right away, being set apart from the world doesn't mean that you move from Yorkville, Sugar Grove, or Hinkley, and you, you, you put everything in a, in a rider truck, and you move out to the far-flung places of Montana or Idaho, where you can't see the next dwelling place from your front door. You're not connected to anything like the internet or anything like television or radio, and you're just living off the land in a communal-type living experience. This is not what I mean about being set apart from the world. What I mean is, is that we will be different than the way the world lives. Now notice what the psalmist says. And again, remembering that many believe that this is Solomon. He's giving us in Psalm 1 a word of wisdom. This word of wisdom in Psalm 1 is going to set the direction of all of the next 149 psalms. If we get this one down, then we're going to be able to respond as the different psalmists do in the times of good and in the times of bad. Now notice there's a contrast, and we need to make a decision. The contrast is seen, it says, Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, or stand in the way of sinners, or sit in the seat of mockers. So on one side we have the man who is righteous, and on the other side we have those who are wicked. And this whole passage of scripture is going to say happiness even though the world advertises that it's found in a life of wickedness, is found solely in a life that follows Jesus Christ and follows God's word. 
Now, this idea of being set apart, right away a decision must be made. Are you going to go the way of the righteous or the way of the wicked? Hundreds of years before this, Joshua, the great leader of Israel, would put it this way. Choose today whom you will serve. I will tell you that many of us are not experiencing the life in Christ because we have not made the conscious decision that we are going to today follow Jesus Christ. Now you say, well, Tim, I did that. I did that some years ago. I did that with my Sunday school teacher when I was a young child. That may be true, but have you chosen today whom you are going to serve? You see, the Bible says, in fact, Jesus articulates it, if you want to be a follower of mine, you must take up your cross, you must deny yourself and take up your cross and follow me. But I didn't leave, I left one word out, and that is that we are to do it weekly, monthly, once a year. He says daily. And that means we need to wake up. And before we go to those workplaces, before we go to those schools, before we find ourselves in this world full of wickedness and all the advertisements of going the other way, we wake up and the first thing we do is not turn on ESPN and see what happened on Sports Center. It's not getting the kids' sandwiches ready for lunch. It's not finalizing the meeting notes for that meeting you have first thing in the morning. But the decision that we have to make, I would even say as soon as our feet hit the floor, is today, Jesus, I will serve you and you alone. When we do that, the Bible says we're the first step towards a blessed life. You're going to be my priority. Now notice, when we don't do this, When we don't make the conscious decision to walk that way, a progression takes place. Notice what the psalmist says. He says that we can walk in the counsel of the wicked, stand in the way of sinners, or sit in the seat of mockers. The idea here is there's a progression. When you choose, when you make the conscious decision, I'm not going to pursue righteousness today, and you say, well, I, I never choose wickedness, you don't have to. The moment that you don't say, Jesus, today you and you alone am I going to serve, you are already moving another way. You see, if you're not progressing, if we don't progress in our Christian lives, we're regressing. There's no neutral when it comes to the Christian life. And some of you say, well, hey, I'm not too bad. I'm coasting. Let me tell you what you're doing. Instead of going up the hill to Christ... When you put your car in neutral, what happens? You head down the hill. Now, you may not head down it all that fast, depending on the the, uh, pitch of of the hill, but you're not moving up. When you go into neutral, you're not getting any closer to heaven. You're going the opposite direction, and this is what the psalmist says. He uses terms like walking, standing, and sitting. He speaks of the counsel. Then he speaks of the way. Then he talks about the seat. He uses words that when we begin to interact are the words wicked, sinners, and scoffers. 
Now, he does this because there's a progression that when we choose not to make Jesus and his word number one in our lives, we begin to fall backwards, and we will progressively see that our lives will become more and more apart from God. Instead of being set apart to God, we're set apart from God. Now, this involves three things. I want to highlight them quickly for you. First of all, write this in your outlines. The first step involves believing the world's lies believing the world's lies. This isn't in your outline. Just throw it under point one. What happens is, is I like what Eugene Peterson in his paraphrase of of the scripture says. He says, don't hang out at Sin Saloon. You see, some of us like hanging around the things of this world. We know that the things of this world are wrong, We know that the things that God has called sin are sin, but but there's something about being in the atmosphere of it all. There's something about being a part of the party that we enjoy. There's something about being with the in-group that we like to have as a part of who we are. So we get become attracted to that. And we begin to say, hey, I can be a Christian, but I can still be there. One, one great way to see this or understand this is many of you tomorrow will go to your offices. And I can say this because my only role isn't just as a pastor, but, but I go to an office, I go to a workplace. And, and what will inevitably come up at some point, maybe not tomorrow, but one of the days of this week, you'll be amongst a group of people, maybe on a break or around the water cooler, and you'll be talking about the weekend and all of the events that have taken place. And inevitably... A dirty or raunchy joke will will come out. Now, we have a choice to make. Now, we're not the ones telling the joke, but we're not naive. We know what they're talking about, and we have a choice to make. We can be a part of the group and and laugh at the joke and, and even listen to the whole joke, or we can set ourselves apart, not being rude or obnoxious about it, but set ourselves apart and say, that is not what it means to make Jesus and his word a priority in my life. And so I'm not going to sit there and hang out believing the stories and telling and hearing of the stories of the way of the world. It's like my children. My children, I will say, hold my hand, especially when we go into a big city where there's a lot of activity, and I'll inevitably have one of them, and I'll be holding their hand, and after a while, I'll I'll feel the pull uh, of them. They're They're not walking with me anymore. Their hand is in my hand, but as I look back, they're they're looking all over the place, and they're tripping on themselves and all of that. And what happens is, is while they're walking with me, they're really not, because their attention, their gaze is on everything else. Some of you right now are holding Jesus' hand, but the last thing you're doing is fixing your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith. Your attention's on everything else. Oh, look at that. that, that's really nice. And like moths to the flame, we become attracted to the things of this world. The psalmist says, stay away from that stuff. Notice what else we have. We have the issue of behaving. Here's the standing. I like what Eugene Peterson says. He says, don't slink around dead-end road. This is where we begin to play the part. We're not just the innocent bystander, and I use the word innocent in quotes. We're not the innocent bystander. But now we're beginning to dabble with these things. And here's the issue with this middle ground, if you will. 
The dabbling happens in the privacy of our own private lives. Now, I don't mean that it's only done when nobody else is around. But there are some of us who would be appalled, who would be horrified if another person from this church saw how they acted at work, saw how they acted with other people when the church people aren't around. And as a result of that, you are beginning to behave like the world. Oh, you still love Jesus, at least in word. But now you find yourself not just looking with admiration to those things, but now you're saying, hey, I got to have some of it. Now I know that if people at church found out about it, if I know that, that Jesus wouldn't be a fan of it, so I'm, gonna, I'm just going to kind of do it quietly and, and under the radar. And, and some of us as, as teenagers, I lived with this struggle because I was one way at church and another way at school. And it was hard. It, it's, it's even hard now when people uh, will write me on Facebook and say, wow, you're, you're a preacher. And, and then I'm fearful. What are they going to say? Wow, I didn't see that coming. Timothy, preacher, that doesn't. And it was because of the schizophrenia that I had that I believe many of us here suffer from. And so no longer are we just looking. Now we're taking it in, but it goes beyond that, and it involves belonging with the world. So we have believing. You start believing that you can, you can enjoy some of these things, even though God's word speaks against it. You start to behave this way. And now the final thing is you sit in the seat of mockers. It literally means you're belonging to it. You're, you're focused in on engaging it. Eugene Peterson says, don't go to smart mouth college here. You've thrown caution to the wind. You come to the point that you start enjoying the things of this world so much that you begin to rationalize if the Lord has given me, and it always starts with bad theology, if God has given me these desires, if God has made these things attractive, then why shouldn't I be a part of them? If, if bad movies and, and bad shows were so bad, then why would God allow them to be so funny? Why would I find myself laughing at them? And you begin to belong and you begin to say, well, if God gave me these, how bad can they really be? How bad can it be? And now no longer are you doing it in private. But now you have no problem if that church person sees you doing such things. I'm not a big Facebook person. I know this is the second illustration I've used, but I have to be honest with you. The reason, and some of you might be scared, and I might be defriended here by this statement, but I look at Facebook as one of the greatest shepherding tools that a pastor can have. Have you ever noticed on Facebook, people just throw caution to the wind and just say whatever comes out of their mouth of their thinking, hi, this is what I'm doing, and I'm blown away. I am utterly blown away by the things that I see some of the people of this church say. The language, the topics. And I'm sitting there going, don't they know their pastor's reading this? Don't they, don't they know of the thousands of friends that they have, that they're seeing some of the pictures I've seen? I am I'm utterly, and, and you know me, I am not a prude. I am not some naive little pastor. I'm in the world, I know. And yet I'm blown away at how much we belong to this world. And I know it's tough. 
I know it's hard to say no. I know it's hard to set ourselves apart. But we need to be thinking. And the saddest thing that Amanda and I have talked about as we've, as we've gone through the, the Facebook thing is, don't they care? Aren't they worried about what people might say? And when you're at that point, when you really, it doesn't bother you if someone says, well, I, I'm not sure that that's the right thing to say. You're beginning to sit in the seat of mockers. You don't care if Jesus' name is defiled by your actions. So it goes this way. Let me put it another way. Be careful because it starts with being casually influenced with your thinking. Whatever you're thinking about the ways of this world, if it is attractive and if you find yourself thinking on such things, be careful because it begins with the head and the heart and it moves to us doing those things. It goes from being casually influenced to being captivated in our tasting of those things to cooperating fully in our debauchery in those ways. So you say, Tim, what an encouraging statement. You said it was going to be about happiness. I don't feel very happy right now. Let's get to the happiness. How do we get away from that? How do we make sure that we don't live in the way of the wicked, but we go the way of the righteous and involves point number two, and that is being satisfied with God's word. Being satisfied with God's word. True happiness comes in verse two. He doesn't live the way of the wicked, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. There are two things I want to apply from this verse. First of all, I want you to notice his attention, the attention that he gives. It says, notice with me in my translation, his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates every other week on it. I'm sorry my translation isn't right. It says that on his law he meditates every Sunday morning on it. No. He meditates on it, some translations say, constantly. I want you to look at that word that's in your hands. And without anybody else answering this question, I want you to ask the question, Where does this book rate in your priorities? And I want you to ask that question deep. You call yourself a follower of Jesus Christ. Then where does it it rank? Is it somewhere in between the newspaper and your favorite magazine? Is it when there's nothing on TV? Maybe I'll do some reading on it. This is why we're putting such a focus on the attention of God's word. I was recently at a church, evangelical church, growing evangelical church, and I kid you not, and please don't take this in a legalistic way, Amanda and I looked around and not one person had a Bible. Not one. And we're all quick to to go after our Roman Catholic friends. They don't take a Bible to church. I'm telling you, the generation of today is so illiterate in that same week I read in a pastor's magazine the illiteracy of God's word with his people. Why, they are asking, why do you think this is happening? Because number one, pastors aren't preaching from it. Number two, we're not being called to bring it. Number three, if it's put on the screen, we don't need it. And some of us, we may bring our Bible 
But what happens with our Bible, and this may offend you, when we get into the car, it's where it goes. It goes right into the back seat. And then we're looking around. Anybody know where my Bible's at on Sunday? I don't know where it's at. It's right where we put it, in the back seat, as soon as we got to the car. That's where it went. His attention is on it day and night. He meditates on it constantly. The idea of meditation literally is the idea of digestion. It speaks the best way of explaining it is speaking of a cow that chews its cud. Chews on it for a while, eats it. I'm going to gross you out. He vomits it back into his mouth. I'm going to chew on it a little more. Just come to the Bedal house. You'll see this happen all the time. Okay? I'm not done eating it, so I'm going to pull it out of my esophagus and I'm going to eat on it more. That's what we need to be doing with God's word. And what it means is not deep Bible study. But one thing I was teaching my son Noah in the last couple of weeks, our theme verse for the, um, for the year for the Badal boys is do not let any unwholesome word come out of your mouth except that which is useful for building up others. Because everything we talk about is toilet talk with three boys. Everything. That's all we can focus on. And a man is like ready to move out. She's like, I'm just done with this. And then I get blamed somehow for it. And I was telling him that every word that he's going to say, he needs to think about it. And he needs to think about what his words are going to be after they come out. What are they going to do? What's the response going to be? And some of us need to start putting God's word into our hearts. And we need to be asking, what does this word mean to me? And after I've chewed on it a while, put it back in there and then chew on it some more. This week, I have focused in on this word blessed. And this idea of blessing in our lives, that God truly wants you to be happy. And I've just been meditating on that. God wants me to be happy. And so what God has done is he's built parameters in my life so that I will be happy. Like a good father puts parameters on his sons, so my God in heaven has put parameters on this is what brings forth happiness. And all this week, I just, people, why are you smiling? Because God loves me. And he's blessed me. Now notice why you would do this. Why would you waste your time doing such a thing? Notice what the text says. It says that he has an affection for it. The word for affection there that the psalmist uses in the NIV is the word delight. That's an important word. It's a word, literally, it's used three times in the Old Testament, in the book of Genesis, the book of Esther, and here in the book of Psalm. And the two other passages, it speaks about in, in two narrative, two storytelling experiences of the experience of a young man gazing upon the apple of his eye in a young woman. And it says that he delights in her. Yesterday I stood right here with a friend of mine for many years as his best man. And I watched him, and usually I get to watch it from a different perspective. It's been a long time since I've been in a wedding. And I watched him delight in his bride. He he just couldn't stop smiling. I'm getting married, and she's going to marry me. I'm so excited. And she is the most wonderful thing in the world. I couldn't have asked for anything more. I can assure you, 
He wasn't thinking, he's a big Cubs fan. He wasn't thinking about the Cubs. He loves motorcycles. He wasn't thinking about his motorcycle. He was delighting in his new bride. The Bible tells us that we are to delight like that in his word. And what that means is, I'm going to rearrange my life so that I can have a relationship with this book. I don't think my friend Brian was thinking, well, I hope she doesn't tell me I have to do X, Y, and Z before we go on our honeymoon because that wouldn't be fun. No, he's saying, what do I have to do to make her happy? What can I do to show her my love? And some of us throw that Bible in the back seat of our car because we don't have a love for this. Turn in your Bibles. I got just a couple more minutes and I need to close this out, but I just want to highlight something. Psalm 119. It's not a psalm that we will be dealing with in this text, but I want to quickly give you in Psalm 119. I've had these highlighted for some time in my Bible because I don't ever want to be a preacher who just preaches something and not enjoy it. And I love what the psalmist says in Psalm 119, starting in verse 16. I'm going to fly through these, but I want you to see what he says. In verse 16 of Psalm 119, I delight in your decrees. I will not neglect your word. Verse 18, open my eyes that I may see the wonderful things in your law. Verse 24, your statutes are my delight. They are my counselors. Verse 27, let me understand the teaching of your precepts that I may, may, may meditate on your wonders. The next verse, my soul is weary with sorrow, but strengthen me according to your word. Verse 35, a page over for me. Direct me in the paths of your commands, for there I find delight. Do you say that about, your, about God's word? How about verse 47? For I delight in your commands because I love them. Verse 54, your decrees are the theme of my song. Verse 69, though the arrogant have smeared me with your lies, I keep your precepts with all my heart. Verse 72, the law of your, from your mouth is more precious to me than thousands of pieces of silver and gold. Verse 81, my soul faints with longing for your salvation, but I have put my hope in your word. Psalm 119, 97, oh, how I love your law. I meditated on it all day long. Verse 103, how sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Verse 111, your statutes are my heritage forever, for they are the joy of my heart. My heart is set on keeping your decrees to the very end. Psalm 120, my flesh trembles in fear of you. I stand in awe of your laws. Verse 127, because I love your commands more than gold, more than pure gold, and because I consider all your precepts right. Verse 129, your statutes are wonderful. Therefore, I obey them. For in 31, I open my mouth and pant, longing for your commands. Verse 138, the statutes you have laid down are righteous. They are full, fully trustworthy. Verse 140, your promises have been thoroughly tested and your servant loves them. Verse 144, your statutes are forever right. They give me understanding that I may live. Just a couple more. Verse 159, see how I love your precepts. Preserve me, O Lord, according to your love. 
162, I rejoice in your promise like one who finds great treasure or spoil. Verse 164, seven times a day I praise you for your righteous laws. In Psalm 167, I obey your statutes for I love them greatly. Again, with nobody else involved, can you say any of those things in regards to God's word on a consistent basis? It involves your attention and it involves your affection. Notice the third thing that living beyond all the limits involves. It involves being supplied by the waters. I don't need to spend a lot of time here, but what the psalmist says is he gives us the idea or the understanding that when we delight in the law, there's a response, there's a result that will happen. Notice what he says in Psalm 1, and notice what he says in verse 3. He says the following. He says... He is like a tree planted by streams of water which yield its fruit in season and whose life does not wither. Whatever he does prospers. When you find yourself delighting on the word of God, you will be like a tree planted by a stream of water. Back where I grew up, not too far from where I live now, there was a creek. We spent tons of time by this creek and there's this huge oak tree, massive oak tree, and it is right on the creek. And it's so close to the creek that on the, the bed of the creek, the side of the creek, you literally see all of the roots going into the water. Now, I can assure you that when it doesn't rain for a week or two, that tree is getting all of its nutrients. It takes a long time for a creek to run dry. And the idea of knowing whether you delight and your attention is on the law of the Lord is asking the question, are you in your longevity of following Christ prosperous and faithful to that calling. Meaning, what I, what, what I mean through that is the idea is, do you, are you a flash in the pan where you obey for a little while and then run away? Or is there consistency in your life that whatever you do prospers, not because you're some great person, but because you are delighting in the law of the Lord? Now, here's the contrast. The contrast is in verse 4, not so the wicked, They are like chaff. They are like that which the wind blows away. So we need to make a decision this morning. Do we want to be firmly rooted and established in God's word? That even though the storms come, even though the trials and tribulations come, even in prosperity and in great agony, we are like that oak tree that is firmly planted, that will not be moved or shaken because we are tapped into the great root system of God's word, or are we like the chaff that the wind blows away, that just goes with any little breeze, that it goes away. Colossians 3 says we are to allow the word of God to dwell in us richly so that we can sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, not just in the good times, but in the bad. That is a life that dwells in the word of God. There's one final thing that I want, I want to close with this, and that is that if we want to live beyond all the limits, it means being submissive to God's warnings. Yes, there is a way to happiness, but if we don't read verses five and six, then we miss out on the full teaching of God. Notice what he says, therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. Understand, God says there's a day coming 
Hebrews tells us there's a, a man is appointed once to die and then comes judgment. All of us will stand before the judgment of Jesus Christ. And the decision that we need to make today is, do we believe that judgment to be true? Do we believe that when we stand before Jesus, as a believer, we will be righteous? As an unbeliever, we won't have a foot to stand on. Do you believe that to be true? Do you believe it to be true that what God is saying is, I will have no time for the wicked on that day? The only thing I'm going to do is I'm going to throw their tails into hell because it's going to be too late. Do you believe that with all of your heart? Do you believe that and do you submit to that word of warning that your case at that point won't hold up in court? That you won't be able to talk your way out of it? That the only thing that God will do is he will point you to the place that has been appointed for those who are disobedient as well as with the devil in a place called hell. Now notice the contrast as I close this out. He says, for the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. You have a decision to make today. And the decision starts in verse 1 and it ends in verse 6. Are you going to be one who pursues righteousness? And in that is truly blessed. In that may be told that you can't do certain things, not because God's a killjoy, but because he truly does love you. Or are you going to go the way of the world? And things may look great right now. Things may look wonderful right now, but, but there's a time coming where you will stand before Jesus and you'll have to give an account for what you've done Are you going to submit to the righteousness of God laid out in the decrees of his word or are you going to live like the world? I implore you today to choose the way of the righteous. There's no better place to be. The text says he watches over. The idea here of watches, a better translation literally is he knows. It speaks of intimacy. When we talk, it said that Adam knew his wife Eve. It's not saying he knew about her, but he was intimately in, uh, connected with her. And God wants that in his life with you. He wants to be connected with you. But if you are going to experience that connection, it means setting yourself apart. It means saturating yourself in God's word. It means then uh, focusing in and putting your attention on on being situated by the waters and then being submissive to God's warnings. And when we do those things, and when we pursue those things and make them our attention and our affection, then we are able to live beyond all the limits that this world could ever give. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you and we praise you. Oh, you are a God that loves us so very much. You know what we need. You know what we want. And Lord, you have led us with your word to that place. So Lord, I I pray for this congregation. I pray for me. That I would go to that map, that GPS, if you will, that leads us to that blessed, that happy life. Lord, even though the advertisements in the world says this is the way to fun, this is the way to true happiness, that we would not follow the lies of this world, but we would follow your word and your word alone. Lord, do a work in our heart. Allow us to have a focus and an attention and a desire and a delight on your word. 
Not so that we won't just sin against you, as that's so important, but that we would truly experience a life that prospers in all that we do. No matter what comes our way, we're able to rise above those things because you are in us and you are with us and you have given us the words of truth that we need. So Lord, we're going to leave this place and we're going to go to a place that has billboards and has signs to go another way. Let us delight in you and you alone so that we may walk the path of the blessed. We love you. We praise you. We give you all the glory and the honor for it. For it's in your son Jesus' name we pray. Amen.